My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome as we continue our journey through the Word of God and today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 which is where Paul starts talking about principles. He gets asked some questions that are about idols and sacrificing meat and what kind of meat they can eat and instead of answering the question maybe the way that they thought that he should or would, he talks about principles and he's going to deal with the topic of knowledge versus the topic of love. So let's get into verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So he's previously dealt with their questions about marriage, about singleness. And now he's going to talk about, in the next few chapters, regarding uh, the topic of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Not sacrificed to God, but sacrificed to idols. Pagan altars. And and the meat that was offered on pagan altars was usually divided into three portions. Uh, one portion was burnt in honour of the God that was being sacrificed to. One portion was given to the worshipper to take home and eat. And the third portion was given to the priest. And if the priest didn't want to eat his portion, he could sell it at the local meat market or to a temple restaurant. Now, the issue, this issue raised a lot of questions with the Corinthian Christians because they wanted to know things like, well, can we eat meat that's purchased at a temple meat market? What if we serve meat purchased at a temple meat market and we're a guest in somebody's home? Uh, can a Christian eat at the restaurant at the pagan temple? And Paul says, look, we know that we all have knowledge. So instead of talking about food, he's going to talk about the principles of knowledge and love. Because ultimately, Christian behavior is founded on love, not on knowledge. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge and love both have an effect on our lives. And they make, well, the byproduct of of knowledge and love is that you grow. But one is like a swelling that can be popped like a bubble. And the other one is actually building a foundation. And that's the difference that Paul's going to say. He's going to say, listen, some Christians grow with a foundation, the others just swell and they can be popped. And he says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, uh, which basically says, look, if you think you know it all, you know nothing. And there is a knowledge that is important, and it's the knowledge of God. And it's the knowledge God has about those who love him. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So this is how he starts off this particular chapter. So then we move on to verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods, lowercase g, by the way, and many lords, lowercase l. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. 
Because there's only one true God, Paul says, idols are not competing little g gods. Idols are nothing in this world, and they are only so-called gods. Adam Clark says this, If meat is offered to Zeus, it doesn't make Zeus real. There is no other god but one. He is only one of the so-called gods, talking about Zeus. There are many images that are supposed to be representations of divinities, but these divinities are nothing. They are the figments of mere fancy. And these images have no corresponding realities. David Guzik makes these observations. What about biblical passages which take some take to suggest that there are other lowercase g gods? For example, in John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, 6 and 7 in saying, you are lowercase gods. But the judges of Psalm 82 were called lowercase gods because in their office they determined the fate of other men. Also in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6 and 22, verses 8 and 9, God calls earthly judges lowercase gods. In John 10, Jesus is saying, if God gives these unjust judges the title lowercase gods because of their office, why do you consider it blasphemy that I may call myself the Son of God in light of the testimony regarding me and my works? Jesus is not taking the you are gods from Psalm 82 and applying it to all humanity or to all believers. The use of gods, lowercase, in Psalm 82 was a metaphor. As well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, which we'll go on and see later on, Paul calls Satan the god of this age. Certainly, he doesn't obviously mean that Satan is a true god in any way, shape, or form, some rival to the Lord God. Satan can only be called the god of this age is because he's regarded as a god by so many people. Lowercase g, all the time. So then Paul goes on and says, as there are many, lowercase g's, and many lords, lowercase l, refers to the so-called gods. Indeed, in the ancient world, there were many, many different gods as there are in today's world, at lowercase g. And even gods as who were known as the unknown god to cover any gods that you may have missed. <laughs> I mean, that's Acts chapter 17, verse 23, talks about that. And Paul says, listen, trying to tell the church in Corinth, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't distinguishing Jesus from God. He's treating Jesus as if he were God. When Paul... Um, when Paul calls Jesus Lord, he uses the Greek word kurios, and this word would have meant something to a lot of the people who were reading the Bible in Paul's day because Paul here wanted to make the point, again, subtly, of the Trinitarian doctrine of Jesus being the same as God the Father. So, no one can say through whom are all things and through whom we live of anyone other than the true God, God the Father. Now, the Corinthian Christians may have thought like this. 
If idols are really nothing, then it must mean nothing to eat the, the meat that's sacrificed to nothing idols. And it must mean nothing to eat in the buildings used to worship these nothing idols. Paul is going to, in the following section, show them actually there's a better way. So it's what we go on to verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. The Corinthian Christians who felt free to eat at the pagan temple may have based their freedom on correct knowledge, knowing that idols are actually nothing, but for some they have consciousness of the idol, and they eat meat sacrificed to the idol as a thing offered to an idol. So Paul asks the Corinthian Christians who know that there's nothing to an idol to remember that not everybody else knows this. And if someone believes that there is something to an idol and they eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Why is their conscience considered weak? Not because their conscience doesn't work. Their conscience is considered weak because it's wrongly informed. It has the wrong knowledge. Their conscience is operating on the idea that there really is something to an idol which is nothing. So you can imagine the free Corinthian church Christians with their superior knowledge, remember they're struggling with a lot of pride issues, saying, well, so, but we're right. And in this case, being right is important, but it's not more important than showing love to the family of God. Again, Paul wrapping love and knowledge in together. Verse 8. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. You aren't more spiritual if you know idols are nothing and feel a personal freedom to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Neither if we eat or we are we the better. In Acts chapter 15 verse 29, the Jerusalem Council actually sent a letter commanding some churches to abstain from things offered to idols. But Paul's discussion of the issue here doesn't contradict what the Jerusalem Council decided in Acts 15. Instead, it shows that the council's decision was not intended to regulate all the church all the time. It was basically a temporary arrangement meant to advance the cause of the gospel among the Jews of that day. On the other hand, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. Paul's point here, no one is less spiritual for abstaining from meat sacrificed to idols. And it's the point where a lot of people stumble in issues relevant to Christian freedom and Christian liberty, such as, you know, what what movies can I watch? What can I drink? Can I not drink? What music can I listen to? What television programs can I watch? They, they, They make the assumption that one stance or another is evidence of a either greater spirituality or a lesser level of spirituality. So Paul says in verse 9, he starts going, well, what does it matter? Uh, I'll tell you what matters. What matters is loving those who are in God's family. So let's go on verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? 
And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. A Corinthian Christian with this incredibly superior knowledge might feel the personal freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but just by exercising that freedom ends up becoming a stumbling block to somebody else. So Paul says, listen, Corinthian Christians, you say you've got knowledge, and what you're doing is you're claiming your right. What about the rights of the weak brother? Which is why he says, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died, reminding them that the weak brother is also somebody that Jesus died for. Now, why is the brother who will not eat the meat sacrificed to an idol considered weak? Many Christians would actually consider that the one that did that would be the one who was the stronger Christian. But Paul's not speaking about weak or strong in regard to self-control, but in regard to knowledge. So to influence the weak brother, the one that doesn't know, to go against his conscience and thereby wound their weak conscience is actually to sin against Christ. The Corinthian Christians who abused their freedom might have thought that it was a small matter to offend their weak brothers, but they didn't understand that they were actually offending Jesus himself. And in doing so, what they were doing is building up their brother to sin. That's what he talks about being emboldened. Emboldened comes from the, the words meaning to build up. And their misuse of their freedom was building others up towards sin. So that's what he says. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. Paul makes the principle clear. Our actions can never be based only on what we know to be right for ourselves. We need to consider what's right towards our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Look, it's easy for a Christian to say, I answer to God and God alone, and to ignore their brother or sister. It's true that we will answer to God and God alone, but we will answer to God for how we have treated our brother and sister. At the same time, there's an issue here about making your brother stumble and stumble over an issue that has direct relevance to that particular brother in question. Paul was never going to allow this principle to be a way for a legalist to make demands and bind a Christian walking in freedom. Guzik's observations. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes a situation where Peter made Gentiles think that they had to come under Jewish customs and laws to be saved. Peter did this through his association and approval of some legalists. Paul rebuked Peter strongly because of this. Even if the legalists from a Jewish background had said to the Gentiles, your lack of obedience to our customs stumbles us. We are stumbled brothers. You must do what we want. Paul would have replied, you are not stumbled because you aren't being tempted to sin through their actions. Your legalism is being offended. Out of love, I will never act in a way that might tempt you to sin. But I don't care at all about offending your legalism. In fact, I'm almost happy to do it. And I agree with those observations. So what's your what, what do you take out of this? Uh, I, I think the issues that Paul was talking to the church in Corinth about, it's the same as things we talk about now. They're just uh, same context, just different things. 
It's people thinking, oh, well, if I don't do this or if I do that, it makes me a better Christian. And there are certain things that you need to know what to do and what not to do. But you do have a responsibility to make sure that whatever you do do doesn't cause your weaker brother or sister to stumble. Weaker meaning they just don't know. So you and I have a responsibility to love them as Christ loves them. So there you go. What do you get out of this? There's a lot in this. It is kind of deep and it's and it's quite complex, isn't it? But I think that there are opportunities for us to really uh, have a little bit of self-reflection on how we live our lives and make sure we're not living like these uh, first century Christians in Corinth. Uh, we're taking those same lessons from the Apostle Paul. So let me pray and we'll finish up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your reminder that we have a responsibility to love our brother and sister and not cause them to stumble. I pray, Lord, that we would always, always be looking for opportunities to build up others, Lord, not just build up ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.